Okay, so a reminder of where we, we've got to. We've already set the whole book of Leviticus up um, yesterday. We've seen that having rescued his people, God has planted this garden in the wilderness. But, but the problem is that no one's been able to get into the garden. As Exodus ends, Adam, as it were, couldn't get back into the garden. Or if you prefer the house picture, God has built this house in the tabernacle. But when he moved in, everyone else had to move out. And we just began to see last night um, that, that God had got a plan for dealing with this. A way of making his dwelling place into a meeting place again. And if you remember, we looked at the first of the offerings, the ascension offering, which was all about kind of ascending, as it were, into the very holy of holies, the most holy place, um, at least in the, in the person of your substitute, this animal that's died. And so what I want to do this morning is look at um, the rest of the offerings in Leviticus. That's quite ambitious, but I, I reckon we can do it. Um, there are in Leviticus five main offerings. I said yesterday, if you grew up as an Israelite, the, the book of Leviticus would actually be second nature to you because you were living it as much as you were reading it and studying it. And there are, there are only five offerings um, that make up the heart of the Levitical system. And so if you can get your head around these five offerings, you'll understand all the offerings in the whole Old Testament. Now, at different times, they're combined in different ways. and There are different feasts and festivals we're not going to touch. But in terms of the actual offerings, there are just five. Um, and I'm going to try and um, make them A, B, C. Okay, so we'll, we'll go along as well. Hopefully, they'll become clear as we go along. Um, and so, again, we'll do a bit of digging to try and understand what they are. But we'll also, with each one, try and think through, well, how specifically does this offering point forward to the work of Christ? And what does it have to say to us today? Um, for those of you interested in this kind of thing, but just, just in terms of understanding Leviticus, Leviticus is uh, made up of 37 speeches. 37 times we get this phrase, uh, the Lord said, Yahweh said to Moses, or some variant on that. And the middle one, the middle speech, is the speech all about the Day of Atonement, as I said yesterday. So the middle of the book is this great day of sin-bearing sacrifice. Slap bang in the middle of Leviticus, and therefore slap bang in the middle of the Pentateuch. And through chapters 1 through 7 are all about these five offerings. Okay, the first five chapters speak about them from the, the worshipper's point of view, the person bringing the offering. And then chapters 6 and 7 go back around the five sacrifices again, but tell, tell the story, as it were, from the priest's point of view. And we'll see, sometimes priests do something, sometimes the offerer does something. That means that any time you look at any one of the offerings, there are two parts of Leviticus that speak about it. Okay, so we're not going to have time to read both each time. We'll have to flick across a little bit. But you get two cycles around these five offerings, and that's what we're going to look at uh, this morning. So Leviticus 2, and let's look at the first of them. Uh, on your sheet, uh, we're on bring a, bring a gift. I put bring a gift. Bring, bring a gift, or the tribute offering. We'll come back to why it's that in a minute. So Leviticus 2. And I'll read from verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense, incense on it, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar. A food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. 
It is a most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Uh, the rest of the chapter goes on all speaking about these grain offerings, as the ESV talks it. Um, but um, as with the sort of animals, you can bring a bull or a sheep or a goat or whatever. So with these grain offerings, you can either bring just grain or you can bake it into a kind of pancake thing or into a loaf. And, but it's always the same process. Okay, so each time I'm just going to give the first example to save some time from reading the whole chapter. But the whole chapter is all about these grain offerings. So, what, what on earth is that on about? What has that got to do with student life in St Andrews in 2023? Well, let's dig a little bit deeper. And this is, as I, as I put on your sheet, literally the tribute offering. I said yesterday that the English Bible translators have got this slightly annoying habit of um, not translating the actual word. You'll know the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. Um, not translating the word literally, but trying to help you understand more. So giving a kind of summary of what happens. We saw in chapter 1, the literal name of the offering is the, the going up offering, the ascension offering. But because the way you do it is by burning it all, they call it a burnt offering. And so too here in, in chapter 2, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the offering here is made of grain. <coughs> so they call it a grain offering. But if you were reading Hebrew, it's literally called a tribute offering. It's the same word, um, remember when Jacob, great patriarch, the father of the twelve, comes to Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis and he brings all these gifts. He, he, they're called tributes. Uh, it's the word, if you remember the story in Judges, uh, fat king uh, Eglon. And you remember Ehud comes to him, uh, it's the story where he ends up stabbing him left-handed, all that kind of thing. He brings a tribute to Eglon. Or when the kings uh, surrounding Israel come to honour Solomon, to give him gifts. They're described as tributes. So that, that's the idea. It's a gift you give to someone who is your, your senior. It's a, uh, the kind of thing you bring. You know, you're a visiting dignitary going to Buckingham Palace to honour King Charles. And you give him a, a tribute offering. Uh, that's why I, I'm, I put for the B, as it were, of the ABCs of the offering. Bring a gift. Okay, so it literally means tribute, but it just does, it helps me to get things stuck in my head um, to uh, have these sorts of mnemonics or whatever they're called. I'm totally pinching this off someone else, but if A, the first chapter, the ascension offering, B, bring a gift. This is about bringing a gift to God's house. And notice it, it doesn't atone for sin. There's nothing in chapter two about, and your sin shall be covered or atonement will be made. Nothing at all. Um, there's no animal that dies. There's no death. There's no blood. There's no substitution. There's no sacrifice. And that's the important point. We tend to call all the sort of offerings in Leviticus sacrifices. But they're not sacrifices. Not all of them. The, the generic word for the five is offerings. We saw it in, in uh, the beginning of chapter one uh, and verse two. When you bring an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock it's there at the beginning of chapter 2, when anyone brings a grain offering. That offering word is, again, if you were being really clunky and literal about the translation, it's a, it's a near bringing. When you bring your near, your near bringing. You can see why they don't translate that, because like it sort of sounds clunky, doesn't it? But, but that is the sense of the word. Some of them are sacrifices. An animal dying in your place, the kind of ones we're used to. But not all of them. And this one isn't. No atonement, no forgiveness, no mercy. And therefore, this is an offering, and we'll see this a bit more on the day three or four, I can't remember. This is an offering that is never offered on its own. You can never come just with 
the tribute offering. It goes with one of the atoning offerings. On top of it or with it. We'll see how that works a little bit more uh, on another occasion. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm crazy as well. Uh, as I said a moment ago, that there are various sort of ways of doing it. You can bring just grain, you can bake it, uh, you can cook it. So we're going to concentrate on the, just the sort of flour offering described in the first few, few verses. Uh, how does it work? Well, do you see in verse 1, you bring it, your, your flour or your loaf, and you bring it with oil, verse 1. And frankincense. And a handful of it goes on the altar, okay, the, the bronze altar out in the courtyard, together, as we'll see later with your kind of burning animal. A handful of the grain goes on the altar, and that is given to God. And it goes on there with oil and frankincense. Why with oil and frankincense? Again, we said yesterday that the author of Leviticus, Moses, um, doesn't stop and say, now the reason you put this on is because. So you have to kind of think, you have to work it out. Um, if you've got that diagram on the inside of your sheets, I don't, don't have it anymore, but um, the picture of the tabernacle. Just have a look at it. Why is the bread offering, the grain offering, being mixed with incense and oil? It's being put on that bronze altar out in the courtyard and it's being burnt. Okay, that, that altar sort of burns continually. Well, where's it going? We began to think about this a bit last night. All the offerings that are, are put on the bronze altar, symbolically as they're burnt, go up and arrive in the, the room above. Remember, the tabernacle is meant to be a kind of multi-story thing. And so this tribute offering, this gift for a great king offering, you put on the bronze altar, but arrives up in, well, up in God's house, the tabernacle proper. What do you see in God's house? What do you see in the tabernacle proper, those, those middle rooms? Uh, you'll see what God has put in his, in his house. He has put a, ta- a, a table on which is a lamp with burning oil, on which is bread, and next to which is a burning bowl of incense. Oil, bread, Incense. That is why the tribute offering you bring as your gift to God consists of those three things. Because God has said, these are things that I find pleasure in. These are the gifts that I enjoy. Those are the things he's set out in his house uh, already. They are fitting gifts for the king. And just by way of aside, it's interesting, isn't it? The wise men, the magi, when they turn up, bring incense, frankincense, to the one who is the light of the world as he sleeps in Bethlehem, the house of bread. I don't know if that's reading too much into it, but it's interesting at the very least. But the point is, this is a gift that God tells you is fit for his presence, okay, that he is going to find pleasure in. It's there again in verse 2. It's a, uh, a burn on the altar. At the end of verse 2, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. God is going to accept this gift. It's a gift he loves. Sometimes it's good to choose presents, isn't it, for people you, you, you love. First year of marriage, didn't know what to get my wife. Spoke to a couple of friends at church, bought three things, 
every single one of them was returned by about January the 10th. Um, even the one where we went to the shop and the woman said, well, I can't, I, I can't, can't give you any money back for it. My wife's like, that's all right. <laughs> that's how badly I chose the gifts. Um, what, what, what does an Israelite, he wants to honour his king, Yahweh. What does he bring? He brings what God tells him will honour him. Bread, incense, oil. Well, okay, but what about for us? What's this got to say to us uh, nowadays? How do we sort of zoom forward, as it were, down the tunnel of time to our own era? Well, here's an offering that is not about paying for sin or atoning or forgiveness or mercy, but it's simply about giving to God an offering, a gift, a tribute that pleases him. Keep a finger in Leviticus, we're going to obviously be based there for most of our time. But, but come forward with me to the book of Romans, Romans 12. <coughs> we could have gone all over the New Testament, we'll look at a couple of passages, but here's, here's a classic, Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sometimes, as you'll no doubt know, the offerings of Leviticus are are picked up by the authors of the New Testament and used as pictures of the work of Christ, dying on the cross to atone for our sins. Okay, we'll see one or two of those in a moment. And that's, what, that's where we tend to go. We think, tabernacle, sacrifice, Jesus. Okay. But sometimes, the sacrifice offering language of the Old Testament is picked up and applied to, well, as you'll see here, as applied directly to us. We are meant to live our lives as living sacrifices. We're presenting our bodies. Remember that near-bringing word? It's the offering word again. We're presenting our lives to to God. And this is wholly unacceptable to him. Now, Romans 12, a bit of insightful sort of biblical commentary for you. Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11. Okay, did you ever know that? One insight for the weekend. Romans 12 comes after Romans 1 through 11. Romans 1 to 11 is all about the gospel. Basically, big, big picture. All about how God has saved you through Jesus. So if you like, Romans 1 to 11 is all about those atoning sacrifices of Leviticus. But once those are in place and you and God are at peace, what now? Well, we move to serving him, pleasing him with our lives. Remember the two offerings we've looked at so far in Leviticus? Leviticus 1, essential offering, was all about atoning, paying for your sin, and once that's dealt with, what happens? We move on to pleasing God. It's not we've got peace and now we just walk away. Well, now I want to please the God who has atoned for my sin. And if you know much about Romans 12 and how it goes on, you'll see that the, the offering we give God, it's not specifically here talking about gathered worship on a Sunday. Again, we'll talk about that on the last day. It's not talking about um, certainly any kind of physical offering, giving of money or whatever. But it's just talking about my whole life. My whole life can be lived in a way that pleases God in response to the atonement that he has made. I think one of the striking things for Christians 
here, or one of the things that perhaps escapes us, is that God genuinely loves your offerings, your service, your life lived for him. It is acceptable to him. Not in and of itself, because if you haven't had the atonement first, if you haven't had the ascension offering, if you haven't trusted Jesus' death for you, then of course your life, I'm living for you, God, of course it's not acceptable to him. Your good works can never pay. But once you are in Christ, well then he can find real pleasure in your service. And we tend to doubt this, particularly those of us who've got a really acute sense of sin, either just personally and in our experience. I'm such a, I, I know how half-hearted my devotion is. I know that even when I do something good, half my mind is on how other people will see me and be pleased. And, and we've got this really acute sense of sin and we think we can never please God. Or perhaps other of us have got a, just a slightly off-beam doctrine of sin where we've been drilled rightly. Uh, that all, every aspect of our, 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 our lives as human being is corrupt in some way, tainted with sin, that's true. And so we think, well, it, all my, my works are just like dirty rags. Go to that Isaiah verse. Nothing I could ever do, even as a Christian, could be at all pleasing to God. But that's just not true. Outside of Christ, it would be true. But inside of Christ, it's not true. God is genuinely pleased with your halting, stumbling, messy, half-hearted, but aimed at him, lives of service. (coughs) I don't know if I put this in your sheet. There's a line from one of the kind of reformed confessions of faith, summaries of faith, called the Belgian Confession. It says this, these works are, are good works after your Christian. Proceeding from the good root of faith are good and acceptable to God since they're all sanctified by his grace. Yet they do not count towards our justification. So they're not what put you right with God, but they are acceptable. You can genuinely please him. I think for a long time I had this view of my Christian life as one where, okay, I'm forgiven so I can go to heaven. And basically God is disappointed with everything I do from now onwards because my works aren't perfect. It's not true. It's not true. Uh, Your life can be pleasing to him. And you could go through the New Testament and see all sorts of places that speak about that language of pleasing God. Not perfect, not spotless, certainly not earning salvation, but genuinely pleasing. The other way this offering is picked up in the New Testament, not just our holy lives, but also in our finances. If you're in Romans, just a couple of books onwards to Philippians and chapter 4. Again, once, once you get a bit of a grip of Leviticus, you see it everywhere in the New Testament. Okay, this, this sort of worship, offering, sacrifice language, it's everywhere. So Philippians 4 and verse 18, towards the end of that chapter, it's Paul speaking about the way the Ephesians, sorry, the Philippians have supported him. Philippians 4, 18. I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Aphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering. Remember that's Leviticus 2 language? Fragrant offering. A sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. <coughs> Sorry, um, a sacrifice pleasing and acceptable to God. What is Paul describing? The, the, the Philippians have sent money, basically, to Paul to keep him going in his missionary journey. And he describes it as an acceptable offering, pleasing, fragrant. 
Uh, elsewhere, don't bother turning to it, but 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 13 to 14. Oh, legend, it was worth you coming. Um, look at that. All is forgiven, thanks. Um, I don't mind this in charms anymore. <laughs> <laughs> 1 Corinthians 9, 13 and 14. Paul says this, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service, priests, get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Corinthians 9, 13, 14. The grain offering. Some of it went on the altar. Remember, a handful of grain went on the altar. The rest went to the priests to feed them and their families. And Paul takes that and says, in the same way, you lot, Corinthians, should provide for your ministers. Now we kind of want to say, look, Paul, come on, come on, ministers aren't priests in the New Testament. They're no more priests, Paul. You can't do that. It's faulty exegesis. But there's a chance that Paul exegetes the Bible better than we do. He sees some continuity between the priests of the Old Testament and ministers, elders, pastors of the New. Not identity. Okay, we're not priests. We don't offer sacrifices and we don't have special access to God. But there is some continuity. The priests of the Old Testament were the leaders of the church, church leaders of the Old Testament. One of their duties was teaching, for example. And so there is some continuity between the two groups. And Paul is able to go back to this pleasing, fragrant aroma offering, see that it supplies the, the priests, and say, well, so too, you've got a duty to care for uh, your pastors, ministers. Because we're all going to graduate in the next few years, God willing. Um, get jobs. A, 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 a key part for many of you a key part of your service will be enabling the work of the ministers. Get used to it at an early age, just giving generously to church. And as you do so, it's not just a duty laid on you by Clarkey because he wants a bigger house or something. It's, it's, a, it's a fragrant offering to God, pleasing and acceptable to him. There we go, the tribute offering. Back to Leviticus. Sorry to jump around a little bit, but kind of inevitable when you're in an unusual part of the Old Testament. Leviticus, that's the, the, the B, A, B, ascension offering, bring a gift offering. C, the third offering, <coughs> come and eat in peace. The peace offering. Leviticus 3. <coughs> We're off back to the animals this time. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering... If he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the side of the altar. And from the sacrifice of the peace offering as a food offering to the Lord, he shall offer the fat covering the entrails, the fat that's on the entrails, two kidneys with fat on them and the loins, the long lobe of the liver he shall remove from the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering which is on the wood, on the fire. It's a food offering with a pleasing aroma uh, to the Lord. Uh, on and on uh, we go, uh, and we get more detail on the uh, peace offering. Where is it? A bit later in chapter 5. Uh, sorry, chapter 6. Now, I can't tell you what all the details are about there. Why two kidneys, lobes of livers, all this? No idea whatsoever. Maybe someone knows. I've not found them if they do. Uh, so what is the difference? You come to this offering and you think, well, it can't be a repeat of the other one. Here's another offering, 
dying, animal blood, burnt, all the rest of it. What's different? Uh, the process is exactly the same as the, the ascension offering. Okay, it's kind of in terms of what you do with the animal. It's almost exactly the same. The difference is the difference is this is an offering you then eat. Leviticus six uh, makes that clear. I didn't write down the verse, which was stupid. Um, I wonder if I can see it quick enough. No, I can't. It's in Leviticus 6. You can find it later. Um, anyway, Leviticus 6 makes it clear that this peace offering, this peace offering is a one that you eat. Some of it goes on the altar to God, and some of it you, the worshipper, the offerer, eat. It's the only one where you do the eating. So that's why, just for the sake of the ABC, come and eat in peace. Okay, the word is literally peace. This is, a, this is one where the English translation does help us. Come and eat in peace. Now, it doesn't make peace. This is an important distinction. It's not an offering that makes peace between you and God. That's been done by the ascension offering, the atoning offering. It doesn't make peace. So again, you won't find anywhere in chapter 3 or in chapter 6 when we come back to the same offering. You won't find, and it will make atonement for you. It's not bearing your sins into the altar, under the fire and the sword, nothing like that. It doesn't make peace, but it proclaims you are at peace because it is you and God sitting down to eat. And when you sit down to eat with someone, it shows you are at peace with them. You could call this the communion offering. I find this really interesting. Um, Why bother with this offering? Okay, if you follow the logic of it so far, you start with the ascension offering, confess your sin, you know, hand on the, um, the animal, um, it bears your sins, it's, it dies in your place, great, sin paid for. Then there's the tribute offering, the bring a gift offering, thank you Lord, I'm at peace with you, here's a gift because you're a great God. And then there's another offering, where you sit and eat together with God, as it were. he symbolically eats it on the altar, goes off to his house, and you eat some. Why not just have the priest say, as he does after the ascension offering, your sins are atoned for? Why not just walk away then? What's the point of another offering where you eat? I think the answer is this. God, throughout the ages, through both testaments, through the various covenants of the Bible, speaks to us by both word and sign. Word and, very often, meal, in fact. He speaks to our eye as well as our ear, ear. And a meal is very often the means that God speaks to us, as well as his word. So certainly Leviticus has that word. The priest says, your sins are atoned for. And in one sense, the worshipper could walk away then. But God in his grace has given a second means of communicating that, 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 that God and man are now at peace. And it is this meal, come sit, eat with me. Now actually for Leviticus, this is a, sorry, for an Israelite, this is a total feast. To be able to sit down and eat a sheep or a bull or whatever it might be. Like that is a real treat. It's a rich, rich blessing. But it is confirming the peace that has been proclaimed by the priest through word. Confirming by or by a meal. Do you remember at the end of Luke's Gospel, Luke 24, um, the, the Emmaus Road story? Jesus is walking along the Emmaus Road and there are two disciples who are just downhearted. 
Like, what's gone on? It's, it's, and, and Jesus, they're kept from recognizing Jesus. And Jesus says, what's, what's the matter? Why are you so downhearted? And they say, oh, you know, we, we, we're trusting this guy Jesus, and we thought he was the Messiah, and, but he's just been killed now. And it's, it's all gone wrong. And Jesus walks them. Rather than just saying, ah, look, it's me. He walks them through the Old Testament, beginning with Moses, all the prophets. He teaches them all that the Old Testament said about the Christ, how he had to suffer and then rise again. He does a giant Bible overview, a Bible study with them. And typically, when we, when we come to preach on that passage or study that passage, we say, look, isn't it amazing? How does Jesus choose to reveal himself in the post-resurrection age, i.e. our age, not by popping up to every single individual in the world and saying, look, here are my scars. You know, we don't get the Thomas experience, but even Jesus uses the Bible to show them that he's risen from the dead. But what's really interesting is that's not all he does. At the end of that story, do you remember that, that Jesus is about to go on and the disciples, these two disciples say, no, no, come and eat with us. Come stay around, stay around and, and have some food. And so he does. And what we read is that Jesus sat with them. He took bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened. That pattern, Jesus taking, blessing, breaking, giving, is exactly the same pattern as Luke has given just a few chapters earlier, Luke 24, the Lord's Supper. Jesus is reenacting the Lord's Supper with him, the Last Supper, sorry. Taking, breaking, sorry, taking, blessing, and then giving. In other words, Jesus is using word and sign again and meal to confirm, to teach the disciples his grace. You can see, I guess, where this is going. What are the two ways God has given to the church to assure you that you are at peace with him. Well, the first is the word of God. He preached, the gospel preached. The second is the signs he's given. Now, one of them is baptism. We'll leave that for now. But given we're talking about eating, the Lord's Supper, absolutely crucial. Two things about it. This meal, it's physical guy called uh, thomas watson puritan said this in the word we hear god's voice in the sacrament we have his kiss i've got um got five kids if i go home on on friday and um matilda the second one who's either seven or eight um she she runs up to me and um and i say i love you matilda and she said i know daddy and then I pick her up and I, I hug her and I kiss her. What new information am I communicating by picking her up and kissing her, hugging her? Well, in one sense, nothing. Okay, well, you know, what, it's not new, it's not different information, is it? I mean, if you hug someone and kiss them, it's because you love them. And yet somehow we all know that the hug and the kiss is adding something, deepening, strengthening. That's part of the idea behind the, the Lord's Supper. These physical things add something to our understanding of our peace that we have with God. It's physical and it's also personal. I don't know how exactly the Lord's Supper is, is served um, back in St. Andrews. Different churches will do things slightly different ways. But however it is served, 
what happens is you personally end up with some bread and some wine put into your hands, given to you in the cup. And, and as, as certainly, as surely as you hold the bread in your hands or drink the cup, put the cup to your lips, well, that's how certainly Christ is declaring he's at peace with you. Uh, I wonder what, what place the Lord's Supper has in your, your spirituality. If you were, uh, I said last night, we've got this girl who's just come to faith from absolutely nowhere. Never been to church in September. By December, we were baptising her. If you, you were sitting down with her and you were trying to disciple her, okay, what are the key elements of the Christian life? For many of us as evangelicals, something like the Lord's Supper is way down the list of things. What's really important is personal Bible reading. Can you give me a Bible passage that says you need to read the Bible every day on your own? There isn't one. Now, don't go away from this back to Paul saying, yeah, yeah, that guy, you know, yeah, don't bother reading the Bible. Now, it's great to read the Bible. But very obviously there isn't a command to do it because, well, for most of the church's history, people can't read and they don't have Bibles. So God will be commanded the totally impossible. There are commands to meditate on what you've heard. Loads of commands to hear, but zero commands to read to the ordinary Christian because obviously you can't do it. And yet for us, that is the centre of our spirituality. And we'd see the Lord's Supper as a kind of, yeah, it's in there, but I don't know, it seems a bit Catholic or something, don't know. You know. Small groups, not in the Bible. Encourage one another's in the Bible, don't have to do it in a small group. Teach one another's in the Bible, don't have to do it in a small group. Now again, don't go back to Clarking and tell him. But, but you see what I mean? We, we, we've got all these things that we, that we put far more centrally than the two things that God puts centrally, which is the preaching of the word and, and the sacraments, these physical gifts. So this isn't to denigrate the other things that we kind of invented, but it's to try and put back centrally the means of grace, as the church has traditionally called them, that God has given to the church, that Jesus used. We are, at the end of the day, heading towards the wedding supper of the Lamb, not the wedding sermon of the Lamb. This meal is important. There are very, very few things in the New Testament that are called the Lord's something, you know, the Lord's... There's your sort of body part, you know, the Lord's feet or something like that. But other than that, there's the Lord's supper, the Lord's table, the Lord's cup, and the Lord's day. Supper, table, cup, three of them are communion. And the fourth is the day of gathering worship. Ascension, bring a gift, come and eat in peace, the communion offering. Uh, the last two we're going to be much more quick on. I can't quite make them D and E. I can kind of get a D, but I can't really get an E. So if someone can give me an E on the fifth one in a minute, um, that'll help. Whichever poor group have to listen to this another time. But let, for not our sake now, let's, let's go to Leviticus 4, uh, which probably in your Bible is called the sin offering. Um, Let me read just a few verses. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, if anyone sins unintentionally, it's a kind of sin of wandering literally, in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done and does any one of them, if it's the anointed priest who sins, bringing guilt on the people, he shall bring for the sin that he's committed a bull from the herd without blemish. Then you get the whole process of sacrifice, uh, atonement. If you jump down to verse 13, so if the high priest sins, it's a bull. Verse 13. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, they do the things that incur guilt, 
Verse 14, when the sin becomes known, they offer a bull. The elders lay their hands. Okay, this time the whole congregation of Israel has sinned. And so the elders of Israel come and lay their hands. Notice church was led by elders in the Old Testament as well as in the New. They're not a New Testament invention. Total side point. Jump down to verse 22. When a leader sins, so a kind of maybe a tribal leader or something, doing unintentionally, blah, 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 same pattern, realizes his guilt, he shall bring a goat, a male goat without blemish. The animal's dropping down a level, not a bull anymore. High priest, whole congregation, bull. Lower level leader, goat. Verse 27, if anyone of the common people, there we go, there's the rest of us, the hoi polloi. What do they bring? Verse 28, a female goat. Okay, it's dropped down a level again. Uh, what is this offering? Um, again, I'm sorry to keep doing this, but almost every commentator, translator, whatever, um, says th- th- this offering, which the ESV calls a sin offering, is more literally the purification offering, as it deals with uncleanness. I'm going to come back to the whole idea of uncleanliness tomorrow. Um, but there are various things that can make you unclean in the Old Testament. And this one cleanses you. So both from unintentional sins, that's the kind of sins of wandering thing, but also you might know there are ceremonial uncleanness in the Old Testament. Um, after childbirth, you become ceremonially unclean, so you need to offer this offering. If that is making you think, just a minute, are you telling me childbirth is sinful? I need hold that thought for tomorrow, okay? We're going to deal with that tomorrow. And the animal you bring depends on the importance of the sinner, the high priest, the whole congregation, leader, commoner. <laughs> And again, if we had time to dig into it, you'll see that the high priest has to cleanse the gold altar because he's the, you know, close to God, and the commoner just, just, just the bronze altar. It's telling us, certainly, that who you are affects the seriousness of your sin. Okay, that is an important point, uh, but not all we're going to dwell on much um, here. It's another offering that makes atonement. See that there in verse 20 and verse 26 and 31 and 35. This is one of those atoning offerings with a particular emphasis on cleansing. It is an offering that cleanses you. And therefore, it's not totally different to being forgiven, but it's just, if you like, a different angle on the gospel. Um, Your sin is paid for. There's the debt picture. Uh, There's the um, anger and wrath poured out on someone else instead of you picture. Propitiation, as it gets called. But here it's the cleansing picture, wiped clean. Okay, it's like dirt stains you and now you're wiped clean. Purification. And then finally, the last of the five. So, so, you could, so I can get a D for you. Okay, Ascension, um, bring a gift, come and eat in peace or communion. D, detergent. Okay, it's a cleansing one. If you want a D, there's a detergent. I can't do the last one though. So I go with purification and, and this last one, the payback offering. Or the guilt offering, as the, as the uh, ESV calls it. The fifth offering, final offering, 5.14 onwards. Um, the, the purification and the, and the payback offering, sin and the guilt offering, if you like, they're really close. It's quite hard to pull apart and quite work out when, when you do one and when the other. But the emphasis here is on is on repayment. Um, so look at five, chapter 5, verse 14. If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation. Okay, it's the payback kind of word. A ram without 
blemish out of the flock, valued in silver shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering, he shall also make restitution for what he's done amiss in the holy things, and shall add a fifth to it and give it to the priest, and the priest shall make atonement for him. This is an offering where you've done some things, a particular category, it's a list of sins, okay, that demand this offering, which we, we haven't really got time to look into. But if you've done one of these particular sins, usually it's kind of defrauding God of his honour, or you know, you've, you've eaten something that's holy, maybe some of the holy sacrifice food and you shouldn't have done, and you need to pay him back, or if you've defrauded someone else. And the idea basically is you, you give back what you've stolen, and you add more. That's part of Old Testament justice, by the way. If I steal one of your sheep... Then when I pay you back, it's not enough to just give you back the sheep. That's just getting us back to square one. I have to give you back your sheep and then another sheep to pay you back for the harm of having it stolen in the first place. So this is the kind of paying back, making restitution. So if you like the sort of letters, A, B, C, ascension, bring a gift, come and eat in peace, and then two Ps, purification and payback. Interestingly, this is the only offering explicitly applied to Jesus in the Old Testament. Now they're all fulfilled in him, okay, so you can get to him for all of them. But in the Old Testament, this is a good place to end. Isaiah 53 and verse 10. Isaiah 53, 10, well-known passage. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He is put into grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, that's the, the guilt offering, his payback offering, he shall see his offspring, prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. These last two are atoning sacrifices again. Different pictures, like I say, one is cleansing, one is paying back, one is cleaning you up, one is paying back the debt. But they're all ultimately Again, the dealing with sin ones, just like the ascension was. That had the emphasis on entrance. This one's got the emphasis on cleaning and then paying back. But they're all atoning. And so big picture, just take a step back. Even if you got lost in the weeds in the last 40 minutes. Even if you got lost in the weeds. Do you see that what is going on here in Leviticus is God is providing. God is providing the offerings, telling you, this is the way back to me. And ultimately, he, provide, he literally provides the offering. He wasn't dropping goats out of heaven with the Israelites, was he? But he did, as he were, drop his son out of heaven for us. The one to whom all these goats and bulls and rams and birds pointed. When Jesus came, he, he, he came and he said to his, his father as he went to the cross, treat me as someone who is unclean. Treat me as someone who is in debt. Treat me as someone who is guilty before me. You. And as he went to the cross, he, he, you know, arms outstretched. He was, treat me like the prostitute. Treat me like the tax collector. Treat me like the, the student stumbling out of the club at... 4am. Treat me like the sex trafficker. Treat me like the terrorist. Treat me like the thief, the murderer, the adulterer. Treat me like the hypocritical Christian who's one thing at church and something very else uh, when he goes home. Treat me like the porn addict. Uh, treat me like the, the two-faced girl who's one thing with her friends and another uh, in private. All those sins, all of the deepest guilts and stains that you can think. Jesus said, treat me like that. I will be the guilt offering. I will be the repayment offering. I will be the sin offering. I will be the ascension offering. It's as if everything we've ever done was tattooed on his body. Your deep shames, secrets, the things that those closest to you don't know. Jesus said, tattoo them on me. 
and I'll pay for them. So Victorian minister, Octavius Winslow, pretty obscure, he said this, nothing short of a divine love could or would have borne our sins and the punishment of our sins. The weight of one and the terribleness of the other would have crushed and annihilated a mere created affection. There existed no love but the love of Jesus equal to the work of salvation. And so he goes on, do not limit your hard experience of Christ's love, for it is infinite in its nature, boundless in its extent. And yet how many of us stand on the shore of that love, that ocean? How little do we know in our experience of the love of Christ in our souls? So bring your heart with all its emptiness, its most startling discovery of sin, its lowest frame, its deepest sorrow, and sink it into the deep love of the depths of the Saviour's ocean. We, we, we endlessly struggle to believe that Christ has paid it all and he genuinely loves us as sinners. The whole of Leviticus points us forward to the one atoning sacrifice where God gave, not just the priest, but the offering. And in fact, God was the priest and the offering. Jesus is no less divine than the Father. He was the one we'd sinned against. He was the one we defended. He knows what you're like, and still he went. Functionally, we, we spend our lives trying to make up for it. We think God likes me if I'm doing well and doesn't like me if I'm doing badly. He'll accept me if I'm <coughs> full of love for him, and if I'm not, then I must be lost. But all the atoning work is done by Christ. There is nothing left to pay. And it was all out of love. And so as you read Leviticus, you, you should look on and, and end up at Calvary. And there you can be utterly safe, utterly assured of God's love. Whatever you feel like, however you've performed the last day, week, month, year, if you rest all your weight on him, then you are safe, utterly safe, a free and gracious gospel. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we... We would love just for the simple gift of trusting and believing the gospel. Um, uh, we confess we believe, but help us overcome our unbelief. Uh, we sway and uh, wonder, uh, even as we sung earlier, uh, our hearts are prone to wander. Uh, but we praise you, therefore, we're not saved by our belief or by our faith, but by Christ, making full and final atonement. Um, thank you that we see your love there, that you, you have provided the offering, the priest. And indeed, in, in the person of your son, you are the offering and the priest. And so give us joy and confidence, humility, awe, and allow us to rest entirely on him, we pray. In his name we ask. Amen. We're going to sing one last song, and um, so I'll invite the band up to sing.